Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the pattern of fraudulent and misleading practices the Trump Organization has been engaged in, laid out in court papers in a civil case brought by the New York State Attorney General, who is also investigating Trump in criminal cases with the Manhattan DA. Trump has employed his tried-and-true tactic of delay in an effort to block the New York Attorney General from questioning him and two of his children under oath. And we will speak with David K. Johnston, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump. A 13-year veteran of the New York Times, he won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code, and he has uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. Also, the co-founder of DCReport.org, his latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. Then, with only the second press conference held by President Biden going on today, lasting for almost two hours, on the eve of his first year in office, we'll speak with Andrew Feinberg, a reporter covering the White House and Congress for The Independent. He joins us to discuss his latest articles, which are Biden gets lowest approval poll in presidency and 70% think country headed in the wrong direction, and Justices Gorsuch and Sotomayor seek to play down mask row, but without addressing accusation, as well as assessing how Biden handled the press. Then finally, we will speak with Thomas Zimmer, who teaches 20th century U.S. and international history at Georgetown University's BMW Center for German and European Studies, with a focus on the transatlantic history of democracy and its discontents. Previously, he was assistant professor of contemporary history at the Albert Ludwigs University of Freiburg in Germany, and he joins us to discuss his article at The Guardian, America Must Take Steps to Avoid a Slide into Authoritarianism. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank a growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is David K. Johnston, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump, a 13-year veteran of the New York Times. He won the Pulitzer Prize in 2001 for reporting that uncovered loopholes in inequities in the U.S. tax code. He's uncovered so many tax dodges he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. He's also the co-founder of DCReport.org, and his latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. Welcome to Background Briefing. David K. Johnston. Well, Ian, thank you for having me on again. Well, thanks for joining us. And the big cheater, it looks like the New York Attorney General is closing in on him. She's released an awful lot of information about his conjuring up all kinds of values for his properties. He valued his apartment in Trump Tower at $327 million, which would make it the most expensive apartment in the world. It looks like she's doing it because of his suits against her. 
there's some concern that we're talking about a civil suit here against the Trump organization vis-a-vis the criminal suit that's going on between the AG of New York and the Manhattan DA. So how significant is the fact that she's put this stuff out? Because I understand it's not what prosecutors really want. Well, uh, this is a very, very important development. Uh, Letitia James, who has inherent civil authority, not criminal, but only civil, is trying to get Donald Trump, Don Jr., and Ivanka to come to the uh, depositions that she has uh, noticed for them with subpoenas. Uh, Trump contends that he doesn't have to respond and come to this because this is all political harassment. Uh, Letitia James, in the paperwork she filed with the court, shows that they have substantial evidence of two kinds of wrongdoing. One is uh, tax fraud, and the other is business fraud. And New York has very strong laws on falsifying business records because it's such a major business center and has been for more than 200 years. Um, I don't believe Trump will be successful in avoiding uh, being deposed, but his effort here, Ian, is really to delay, as the notorious Roy Cohn taught him, if the government or law enforcement comes after you, accuse them of being wrongdoers, they're the horrible people, and then delay, 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 delay. And hopefully the courts will quickly say, no, you have to show up for your deposition. Now, for Donald, the problem with the deposition that is a proceeding in private uh, where you are questioned under oath, and there's a transcript, and I'm sure there'll be a video of the uh, conversation. Uh, The problem for Donald is that he just makes stuff up. He creates his own reality. And he will, you know, lie himself into serious trouble that when presented to a civil trial and shown to a jury will show that he has no credibility about what he's been doing. And and finally, in uh, this issue of valuations, you know, I disputed 10 years ago the value that my town assessor put on my house for property taxes. We were talking about a difference of uh, $30,000. We split the difference. Donald, in one of his properties, uh, bought it for $7 million, later claimed in documents to get bank loans that it was worth $220-some million in round numbers, uh, later knocked it down to $19 million, and has asserted during all of this to the uh, local property tax assessor that it's really only worth what he paid for it, about $7 million. He has a golf course in Westchester County, just north of Manhattan, Uh, He says it's worth $1.3 million to the property tax officials, but on his presidential ethics forms, he said $50 million year after year. Actually, the category is $50 million plus. He's repeatedly publicly said it's worth over $100 million. Well, $1.3 million and over $100 million, that's not a, a dispute over a range of values. That's fraud. And on building after building, Letitia James now has the evidence he did this, and he used these valuations in his income tax forms. New York State income tax forms are virtually identical to federal ones. So if Donald, in fact, committed New York State income tax fraud, he committed federal income tax fraud. So in other words, Letitia James, the New York State Attorney General, is basically giving the IRS a roadmap. It's right in their face. How can they not 
see it and well, act on it. Yeah, yeah, there's a long history of uh, California, New York, some other states pursuing tax fraud that the IRS doesn't go after. There are only about 500 people a year in this country who are charged, not convicted, but charged with a primary crime of federal tax fraud. Um, I mean, it's a tiny number in a country with 330 million people. The IRS has been so stripped of resources that they're having trouble just processing tax returns and getting refunds. In fact, one of my grown children took her, I think it was three and a half years to get a refund that she was due. Uh, and this is just not unusual. And in 2019, DC Report, we did a five-part series called The Koch Papers, K-O-C-H, about the third Koch brother, Bill Koch, who is a neighbor of Mar-a-Lago. He has collected well north of a billion dollars without paying income taxes. Uh, we have documents proving he was under criminal investigation for this until his neighbor, his friend, and the person whose campaign he supported, unlike his older, richer, famous brothers, Charles and David Koch, who did not support Trump, uh, suddenly the IRS dropped the case, and it was a slam-dunk case. They had a slam-dunk case against this guy, and they dropped it. So will the IRS pursue Donald Trump? I would be That I would be very surprised about. And again, I'm speaking with David K. Johnson, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump, a 13-year veteran of the New York Times. He won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code, and he has uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States, and he's also the co-founder of dcreport.org. And his latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. So, David, though, back to Letitia James, the New York Attorney General. If she's putting all this information out to satisfy the judge that that Trump's charges, that this is a political witch hunt, will go away. And you pointed out that this is, again, a delaying tactic on Trump's part, which Roy Cohn tutored him on. Will the judge make a quick rulings not to fall for Trump's delaying tactic? Well, that's the, the, the issue I... It depends on who the judge is. There's, Donald doesn't have any basis for these claims. And let's assume for the moment, as the lawyers say, arguendo, for the sake of the argument, that Letitia James is politically motivated. Once she's actually found evidence of tax fraud and business fraud, it doesn't matter. It's not relevant. So Donald is simply trying to do what he always does, you know, avoid accountability. And we should hope that the New York state judge overseeing this, New York's a very strange place in that our trial court is called the Supreme Court. Yeah, the highest court in the state is called the Court of Appeals. Uh, so we should hope that the state Supreme Court judge overhearing this case will quickly uh, order Trump to show up for his subpoena. Now, that doesn't mean that Trump will show up. But if he doesn't, a whole series of things can happen. He can be fined. Um, uh, he can be found to have not defended himself in a civil suit and uh, lose the suit by failing to show up. If he doesn't show up for the deposition and they go to trial, he may be barred from making some arguments because he wouldn't show up at the deposition. Uh, so basically, the walls are closing in on Donald. He's got the New York Attorney General's civil case. He's got the Manhattan District Attorney's criminal case. 
which has been delayed because instead of the expected 1 million pages of documents from Donald's accounting firm, uh, Mazers, they got about 5 million pages, and they have to go through all of those pages before they can act. He's got the Attorney General of Washington, D.C., looking into the $107 million that was raised for the uh, inaugural. And there's a chapter in my book, The Big Cheat, about how um, there was an effort to uh, cr- collect money without reporting it as required by law. That's a felony. And that, I know, is under investigation in Washington, D.C., and uh, should result, I would hope, in an indictment, but certainly in civil action. And then in Fulton County, Georgia, uh, Trump is under a criminal investigation for trying to get the election thrown out in his favor. And finally, Mimi Roca, the newly elected district attorney in Westchester County, New York, where his golf course is, uh, uh, she is pursuing a similar case against Trump to the one the state has, but hers is a criminal case involving Uh, making different representations to property tax authorities, lenders, and insurance companies. But all of this was flagged long ago in a House hearing with Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, who again gave the world the roadmap. Yeah, long before that, I wrote about it. I mean, I, I wrote about this stuff even longer ago than that. But, you know, one of the things to keep in mind is that things take time. From the the moment the Watergate plan was hatched until Richard Nixon resigned, it was two years and eight months. We don't have here um, the same Congress where both Republicans and Democrats were, at least a number of Republicans, uh, when Nixon was president, were willing to question what he was doing. We have this uh, highly partisan, my way or the highway Republican Party. And uh, things are taking too long by any reasonable measure, but they are moving forward. And I'm completely confident Trump will be be civilly charged in New York over tax and business fraud and criminally indicted, probably under New York State's racketeering and enterprise law. Uh, by the Manhattan District Attorney. But, you know, yeah, things shouldn't move this slowly. And you don't think then that this civil case, revealing all this information, is going to negatively impact the criminal case? Not In other words, give give Trump the heads up? No, because first of all, Trump's... uh, Donald doesn't know his own company. Uh, He and I have had conversations where I knew more about some of his business dealings than he did. And he blew up at me over one of them. How do you know all this about my business? And I went, because I read the documents that you put in the public record or your lawyers put in the public record. Um, But, you know, his his children and everybody else, they know what they've been doing. They know that they have been uh, serial tax cheats. And, and, And the reason is that the Trumps just don't believe the laws apply to them. They're special. They're not like you and me. They're special. And so they don't have to obey these laws. And if somebody raises a question, you just pay money to lawyers to muddy the waters, confuse the public, and try to make it go away. And if Donald had never been president, that might have continued to work for the rest of his life. But it's not going to work now because he was president and because that makes him such an important subject to establish that we're going to at least try to have equal justice under law.
Well, you sound that like you think that eventually the sheriff's going to catch up with this guy. This will he, be the first time ever, gonna, won't it? It would. It would absolutely uh, be the first time, other than some fines he's paid. I mean, when, for instance, Donald removed black women and Asian blackjack dealers and cocktail waitresses to curry favor with a mobbed-up guy named Bob Labuddy, who was his biggest casino customer. He was fined, uh, my recollection is $250,000. And interestingly, Bob Labuddy, uh, who used a lot of vile racist language uh, himself, said Donald's a racist. Um, so he's been fined on occasion for things, but that's all. He's never faced the prospect of losing his liberty or of a lawsuit as big as Letitia James appears to be preparing which would have rather devastating consequences because keep in mind, Donald at one point claimed to be worth $11 billion. During the campaign, he repeatedly said more than $10 billion. When he became president, he filed a statement that only showed $1.4 billion, a tenth uh, basically of, of what he claimed. And um, even that had a lot of inflated values uh, in it. There is not now and there never has been a shred of evidence that Donald is or ever was a billionaire. He just has a lot of cash flow. He's a rich man. I mean, no, don't, don't misunderstand. He's a wealthy man, but he's not a billionaire. And the kind of information we have now from Leticia James filings, that would be enough to collapse the Trump organization. Well, maybe he doesn't need it anymore. He's got the Republican Party in his pocket. Uh, he has become America's beggar-in-chief, and this is a disturbing thing, Ian. We sent at DC Report a reporter to his Arizona rally Saturday night uh, because several of his late 2021 rallies, where he had to pay to get in, had very light attendance. And Trump controls the cameras, so nobody saw that in one case only about a third of the seats were occupied. Uh, there was a four-mile-long line of cars to go to his rally in Florence, Arizona, which is a wide spot in the desert midway between Phoenix and Tucson. Uh, there were many, many people who were not, couldn't get in through the metal detectors to be inside the, the venue area before the Secret Service shut it down. And it does raise the question of how much support does Donald have? How much popular support does he have? We've been working on the assumption that it's waning, but we're going to watch the next several rallies he has to see uh, how many people show up. And then, of course, the other point our reporter made was is an old saying when Donald was a, a casino operator in Atlantic City, that Atlantic City was America's number one destination with 32 million visitors a year. And the problem with that it was, it was it was really uh, 3 million people who came 10 times a year. Uh, we don't know if the people in Donald's crowds are the same people again and again and again with a few locals. We suspect that, but don't know it for sure. Um, but, you know, a few more rallies, we'll have a good idea whether his support is waning or remains steady. And if so, the risk we're at that if he gets into the White House again, our freedoms will just go down the toilet. Right. And at that rally, Trump made the outrageous racist statement that white people in this country are being put at the back of the line when it comes to treatment for COVID. Yes, and he also he also denounced mail-in voting. Guess how right. Donald votes. <laughs> <laughs>
So. Well, I thank you for joining us, David K. Johnson. I really appreciate it. Take care. Thank you. You too. And I've been speaking with David K. Johnson, a Pulitzer Prize winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump. A 13-year veteran of the New York Times, he won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes in inequities in the U.S. tax code. And he's uncovered so many tax dodgers that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. He's also the founder of DCReport.org. And his latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and his family. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into only the second press conference held by President Biden today, which lasted almost two hours on the eve of his first year in office. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Andrew Feinberg, who's a reporter covering the White House and the Congress for The Independent, where his latest articles are Biden Gets Lowest Approval Poll in Presidency, and 70% think the country's heading in the wrong direction, and Justices Gorsuch and Sotomayor seek to play down mask row, but without addressing accusations. Welcome to Background Briefing, Andrew Feinberg. Good to be back. Thanks for having me again. Thanks for joining us again, Andrew. And the press conference went on very long, almost two hours. And to the extent to which your article pointing out Biden's lowest approval ratings in these various polls, uh, that 70 percent of the country think the country's headed in the wrong direction. How much did the fact that Biden seemed to handle this situation very well, handle the press, seemed to want to talk to anybody and everybody, including his critics, and had answers for everything. I don't know whether, they, obviously the whole country's not watching, but do you think he did something to repair those poll numbers? I don't think one press conference is going to reverse a year's worth of numbers that have declined uh, steadily, uh, at least uh, Steadily, maybe even precipitously, since uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, sort of turned turned the uh, the worm, uh, so to speak, on coverage of the Biden administration. But I think it's it's a good start. Uh, the president said he's going to be getting out more. He's going to be engaging more uh, with Americans. He's going to do public forums. He's hopefully going to do more of these press conferences because. I think one of the problems that he's had is that his team uh, has been so focused on modeling uh, behaviors uh, to deal with the uh, coronavirus pandemic uh, that the president hasn't done march events. He hasn't done rallies uh, in support of his agenda. Uh, He hasn't been out with the public and the public hasn't been with him. And he also hasn't done a lot of uh, interviews with print media or uh, one-on-ones with uh, television reporters, aside from a few uh, rare occasions. And and so I think the public, after especially after four years of, of a guy in the White House who was omnipresent, wants to hear from the president. 
And I think that if he does that, uh, his approval ratings will most likely recover somewhat. I don't know if he'll be uh, in the territory he was when he first took office, but I think getting out there more and taking questions from both the public and the press can only help him. And he did acknowledge that, that he hasn't been out enough answering one of the questions and that he did mention it's because of, to some extent, because of COVID. Uh, and that that was his main, I think that was the main takeaway, wasn't it? That this year, what's left of it before the election, he's going to be on the road. I mean, when you think about the frustrations he's having, particularly with Senator Sinema, she doesn't even talk to the press. So in terms of Biden talking to the press and particularly answering questions from critics in the press about whether or not he's senile. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he wasn't senile, was he? He handled it pretty well, wouldn't you say? He did. I, I don't I don't think he came across as uh, senile unless you're someone who's looking for uh, things to clip and uh, use to portray him in, in bad faith. I think one problem that... Uh, the president has, uh, to put it uh, succinctly, he talks like a print newspaper guy in a TikTok world. Um, his answers uh, were detailed. Uh, his answers were long. Uh, he didn't dodge questions, but he answers them in a in a way that doesn't necessarily lend itself. Uh, to a world of 30-second sound bites uh, that can be uh, repackaged in in ads or in uh, television uh, news packages or ra- or radio reports, it's it's not the best style for uh, for leading a country with, uh, frankly, a short attention span. And again, I'm speaking with Andrew Feinberg who is a reporter covering the White House and Congress for The Independent, where his latest articles are Biden gets lowest approval poll in presidency and 70% think country headed in the wrong direction. And Justices Gorsuch and Sotomayor seek to play down mask row, but without addressing accusation. So let's talk then about your articles, uh, particularly the Biden gets lowest approval poll in presidency, and 70% think the country's headed in the wrong direction. Obviously, he's entering the second year. Most presidents have a tough time in their second year. You pointed out that things started to go south after Afghanistan. He did actually address that in one of his answers. So how does this compare to other presidents? Because this is, uh, I guess, a, a fair way to look at it, right? How other presidents have fared and... His approval ratings, I think, now are lower than Trump's, aren't they? I think they're they're a point higher, but probably within the margin of error. Um, And, you know, I think the fact that this was his second press conference uh, of of the year, I think that's that's a big factor in in his low approval ratings. Uh, He hasn't been explaining himself. Uh, When he does give public remarks, it's often been in, in this kind of contrived setting in the um, in the uh, executive office building auditorium where there's a, a set that's been built. And I don't know why the White House has been doing that, but uh, it, it is a bit of a weird visual uh, at times. Uh, he hasn't made many formal uh, Oval Office addresses 
that really make full force of, of the gravitas that the presidency uh, can bring to a message. Um, and so I think part of the problem that he, maybe a lot of the problem that he's had is that he's been president for an entire year as of tomorrow, but in, in some ways uh, he hasn't made himself uh, visible uh, enough to let people know what he's doing. And when he has spoken about what he's doing, it's been for daytime cable news audiences uh, that you know don't represent most of the electorate. And he's done it in a way that uh, doesn't draw attention to the fact that he's president of the United States and what he has to say is really important. Well, he got lots of questions on Ukraine. And frankly, if you sort of the average out all of his answers, you come to the conclusion that the president of the United States believes that a war in Ukraine is almost inevitable. He kept talking about the price the Russians will pay. Well, he never mentioned the price the Ukrainians will pay, which is going to be enormous. I thought, in a way, that he was a little blasé. A war in Europe is catastrophic. I didn't get the feeling that he was putting it in that context of, you know, if you're going to tell us that you can't stop Putin and the war's all been inevitable, at least point out what a catastrophe it is. I don't think there was a good answer he could have given there. Um, quite frankly, the problem that uh, he has with what Russia is doing is the same problem that the Obama administration uh, faced with what Russia was doing. It was a little different uh, with the Trump administration for reasons I won't, uh, I won't get into, uh, but this problem is that America doesn't really on its own have the ability to intimidate someone like Putin who really doesn't have anything to lose. Now, someone like Donald Trump will go and he will say, oh, it's because Biden is weak because he because he's not uh, you know, preening and, and peacocking with the other strongmen uh, at international events. Well, uh, Biden doesn't really want to be a strong man, so he doesn't want to impress them, so he doesn't act like one. Uh, but any American president is going to have this problem because the main tool that we have to deal with this kind of stuff right now is sanctions. Unless we're going to put together a, a military alliance the way uh, George H.W. Bush did when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, uh, it's not like uh, the president can credibly threaten uh, the use of military force, particularly against uh, another major nuclear power. Uh, there, there's a reason the U.S. and the USSR never fought a war, and there's a reason the U.S. and Russia haven't fought a war and probably aren't going to fight a war. So really, well, Biden but a war is going to happen, though. That surely, a war in Europe is not going to be nice, even the non-nuclear. It's not. <laughs> It's, so, it's not. It would. It would not be nice. But uh, the problem that Biden is going to have is that he can't. He can't. You know, just unilaterally commit American troops no. unless he's doing it as part of a, a larger international effort. Uh, because, really, I, I don't think the American public has the stomach for it. Clearly, you don't want to um, engage in a war with Russia, and, and particularly it being the second 
biggest nuclear power on the planet. And the last time Putin massed troops on the Ukraine border, he did go to full nuclear alert. So I'm sure this time, once it turns into a hot war, he will go to full nuclear alert. So let's talk about the other subject that came up a lot, and that is COVID and how the Biden administration is handling this latest round of COVID, which we have more Americans hospitalized now than you ever had at the worst period so far in this pandemic. You say that in terms of the polls, that the Democrats hold a slight advantage of 39% saying the public trusts them to 35% who say they trust the GOP more. That's not much of a margin. However, a clear majority of voters surveyed, 58% said it was the top priority for Congress to act to stimulate the economy to recover from the pandemic. How do you think he did on that front? I think he did. Uh, he did just fine. Uh, the first major piece of legislation uh, that the president passed, uh, the president signed, Congress passed it, uh, was uh, the American Rescue Plan Act. That was his you know, massive COVID stimulus bill. Uh, the problem now is he's not going to be able to get Republicans on board on another one. And it's unclear that he'd be able to get all 50 Democrats on board uh, so he could get it through with the reconciliation process he used for the American Rescue Plan. Uh, right now, even if it's sorely needed, uh, the political imperatives uh, are driving Republicans uh, more than anything else. And their imperative right now is ensure that the Biden presidency fails in every way possible, uh, consequences to their voters be damned as long as they can get back into office so they can start hurting the people that the voters want them to hurt, uh, or owning the libs, as they say. Sure. Well, just in the last minute, though, I wanted to cover the uh, second article, Justice Gorsuch and Sotomayor seek to play down Mask Row without addressing the accusation. And, and this is in response to an NPR story. The justices... uh, respectfully, I don't, I, I don't know enough about that to, to really discuss it. I was asked to do it uh, just sure. like as a quick as a quick hit. So I'd really rather not. I'm not a Supreme Court reporter, and so I don't have any insights on that. I understand, but the gist of it is that the denial that Justice Sotomayor had asked Gorsuch to cover his face, they denied that, but they haven't denied the central issue, which is why is Gorsuch not wearing a mask? Well, they haven't addressed why he's not wearing a mask. Exactly. The court, the court also put out a statement earlier today that said that Chief Justice Roberts did not ask justices to wear a mask. I'm not quite sure if they're parsing their words a bit. I haven't looked at the statement, but generally, you know, Nina Totenberg, who was the reporter on that piece, has been covering the Supreme Court longer than I, I think anyone, and her sources are usually impeccable. Well, it is something that I wish we could get to the bottom of. Do you think we will? Because, frankly, it's appalling, I think. that, uh, I, that I doubt this, it. You don't, you don't think so? I, I, mean, I, I doubt it. Yeah. I thank you for joining us, uh, Andrew. I appreciate it very much. Happy to come on anytime. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. And again, I've been speaking with uh, Andrew Feinberg, who's a reporter covering the White House and the Congress for The Independent, where his latest articles are Biden gets lowest approval poll in presidency and 70 percent think the country's headed in the wrong direction. And Justices Gorsuch and Sotomayor seek to play down mask row, but without addressing accusation. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with a perspective from an expert on democracy and its discontents about America's slide into authoritarianism.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Thomas Zimmer, who teaches 20th century U.S. and international history at Georgetown University's BMW Center for German and European Studies, with a focus on the transatlantic history of democracy and its discontents. Previously, he was assistant professor of contemporary history at the Albert Ludwigs University in Freiburg in Germany. And he has an article at The Guardian, America Must Take Steps Now to Avoid a Slide into Authoritarianism. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Zimmer. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And I obviously, I, I want to talk about your article in The Guardian. But on yesterday's program, I had the former top of, uh, intelligence official in the U.S. government, who was recently the National Intelligence Officer for Europe. And he, I must say, what he had to say about what's happening now with a potential war between Russia and Ukraine was so alarming that he basically thinks it's all but inevitable and could happen within a week or two. If we're going to be talking in a few weeks, Thomas, we would be talking about a war in Europe, which sounds almost unthinkable. So what are you hearing from the folks back home in Germany? Uh, well, you know, not that much. I'm, I'm really very much focused on uh, U.S. history and sort of the, the, the struggle over democracy on, on this side of the Atlantic. But I think there's a connection here, right? I think um, Russia, Vladimir Putin, um, the way I see it is very much part of what you might call a an international uh, uh, or, or transnational uh, a movement or faction of white nationalists who um, have decided that liberal democracy, uh, multiracial pluralistic democracy doesn't work for them, um, that they want to present an alternative, which is a more sort of white Christian nationalist version. And I think Vladimir Putin, there's, it's not a coincidence that people on the American right, uh, people in the, in the Republican Party, elected officials in the Republican Party have decided that um, Putin is somehow a role model for them, just like Viktor Orban is in Hungary, and that American conservatives are looking to Russia, looking to Hungary, looking to places like Poland and Hungary as almost role models of how to sort of roll back liberal democracy, establish a more well, what, what they think of as, as a sort of a, a real American type of democracy. So I think um, I think that's a, those are very alarming, very dangerous um, developments um, that are s kind of combining the, the domestic situation with the, the international situation. And in both cases, both here in the United States amongst the Christian right, they want to create, a, as you point out in your article, a predominantly white Christian patriarchal nation. And that's exactly what Putin is doing in Russia with his alliance with the Orthodox Church. I mean, that's exactly right. People like Putin and, again, Viktor Orban in Hungary, they are deliberately presenting themselves, and not just domestically, not just to their own people, but on an international stage as, again, like alternatives to this sort of liberal uh, uh, version of democracy that they think has gone just too far. They see it as uh, the EU and sort of liberal America pushing this 
um, this this multiracial pluralistic version of democracy, and they want to present themselves as the alternative to that. And it is highly alarming, but also uh, very telling that so many people on the American right, so many American conservatives um, are very much attracted to that uh, sort of authoritarian, uh, white Christian patriarchal alternative that they are presenting. And indeed, Tucker Carlson, the most popular anchor on Fox News, he is supporting Putin over Ukraine. He's taking Putin's side. Yeah, so, I mean, and he went over to he went over to Hungary last summer um, to broadcast from Budapest for like a week, um, which was basically it, it was one hundred percent Hungarian authoritarian Hungarian propaganda. They're gonna have they, they're gonna hold CPAC in Hungary next year in Budapest. So you, you can really tell. I mean, this is not an entirely new phenomenon. There was always. Uh, a strand of conservatives, a strand of people on the American right who looked to sort of uh, authoritarian regimes, um, uh, international authoritarian regimes, and and kind of pointed to them as uh, alternatives to what they saw as you know liberalism and, and and multiculturalism in the United States. It used to be South Africa for a long time, and now again it is it is Russia, it is Hungary. Um, but that should really that should really tell us um, you know if. If you tell me what you think of Viktor Orban's Hungary, and I'll, I'll tell you who you are. And if you tell me that's the kind of society you want, then, well, then, then I can tell you, uh, you're clearly not on board with multiracial pluralistic democracy. And again, I'm speaking with Thomas Zimmer, who teaches 20th century U.S. and international history at Georgetown University's BMW Center for German and European Studies, with a focus on the transatlantic history of democracy and its discontents. Previously, he was the assistant professor of contemporary history at Albert Ludwig's University in Freiburg in Germany. And he has an article at The Guardian, America must take steps now to avoid a slide into authoritarianism. Now, in your article, Thomas, you point out the obvious, which is that Donald Trump was voted out. His coup attempt failed. Joe Biden is president. The Democrats have a majority in Congress. So what's wrong? And what's wrong is apparently, and it seems pretty clear to me, is that the Republicans are highly motivated and determined, in effect, to create a kind of one-party state or a pseudo-democracy like Putin has created in Russia with the United Russia, and the Democrats who have the power, the power slipping away from them, why is one party out to destroy democracy so motivated compared to the other party that's supposed to be defending democracy so kind of bumbling and divided? Well, I think there's there's two parts uh, to that question, right? So, so the first the first part is what what is going on on uh, on the Republican side? What's going on within the Republican Party? I think um, for quite some time now, for several decades now, the Republican Party has been focused almost exclusively on the interests and and sensibility of white conservatives, right? Um, and you know. As America has become less white, less conservative, has become more liberal, that is due to political changes, cultural changes, but more, most importantly, due to demographic changes over the past, especially over the past 30 years or so, um, that sort of white conservative version of America, that sort of white conservative political project does not have majority support anymore in, in America. Um, and, you know, no one understands this uh, better than Republicans themselves. They understand that in a functioning democratic system, they would have to either widen their focus beyond the interests and sensibilities of white conservatives, 
or they would have to be they would have to accept that they would relinquish power but they're not willing to do that they have chosen a different path you know they have chose they have made a decision if they cannot have republican rule and democracy then it is democracy that has to go right that is basically the decision that the republican party has made um and so they are determined to transform the political system. And we see this, especially on the state level and on, and on the local level, not so much on the federal level where they don't have, right now they don't have the power to do that, but on the state level, wherever they are in charge, which is about half the states, they are committed to transforming the political system into, again, uh, one party systems, one party rule systems, systems that might still look like democracies, right? There will still be elections, but um, they will be so distorted that um, only one party can win those elections. So they are really, they are determined to hold on to power against the will of the majority of voters. Um, so that is what's going on at the Republican Party. They are really united behind this anti-democratic project because again, for them, the overriding concern is not democracy, it is to uphold the sort of traditional white Christian patriarchal order in American society. That is how they define real America, right? I mean, they present themselves, and I really, I really do believe that most Republicans are convinced that they are fighting a noble war to uphold what they see as real America, right? They're not getting up in the morning, looking in the mirror and saying, oh, we're just power hungry, cynical, whatever. They are looking in the mirror and they, they're telling themselves, we are upholding real America, which again to them is a white, uh, a white Christian patriarchal nation, a place where white Christians and particularly white Christian men are at the top. So I think they are really united behind this project. So... I guess you can go back to George W. Bush's presidency, and, and he, of course, spoke Spanish, <laughs> not exactly well, but nevertheless, uh, he was sincere, and he was trying to get the Republican Party to reach out to minorities, in particular the emerging Hispanic minority, which is becoming a majority in some states. So that's where the change happened. Is, was George W. Bush the last Republican to want to compete against the Democrats over demographics as opposed to cheat, which is what's happening now with the current Trump GOP. So I think the um, the change happened earlier, but it didn't happen all at once. It's it's a sort of a, a process that took uh, decades, really. But look, the Republican Party has been on this trajectory for a, a, a long time. It really started in the 1960s when basically... Um, one party decided, or we should say one part of one party, the more liberal part of the Democratic Party decided that they would become the party of, um, you know, voting rights, uh, civil rights for, for African-Americans. Um, and the other party decided that they would do something else. They would uphold a more traditional white Christian order. At that point, remember, up until the 1960s, there was no conservative party or liberal party, right? There were the two major parties, but they, in, in and of themselves, they were coalitions of very heterogeneous groups, right? They had liberals and conservatives um, within, within the parties. And that sort of, you know, that got sorted out by, again, this fundamental decision either for or against multiracial democracy. Now, that process, it, again, it started in the 1960s, but that doesn't mean that 
there weren't moments along the way when uh, either party could have taken a different turn. And you mentioned one, right? So the, the George W. Bush early 2000s. Um, let's 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 try to reach out to uh, non-white white voters, uh, particularly Latino voters. There was also remember after uh, the 2012 election when when Barack Obama got reelected, they had what they called the autopsy, um, um, which which basically uh, like a, a process of trying to figure out what went wrong, why did we lose this election, and and there was this idea that you know we lost this election because we need to do a better job reaching out to uh, people who are not white. So there, there were always these moments along the way, but the bigger trend, the bigger trajectory since the 1960s has been something else. The conservative movement, the modern conservatism in, in America, um, as it has existed since the 1950s, as it has existed as a political project, has always been focused very much on upholding they used to call it white Christian civilization. Um, I would call it, again, a white Christian patriarchal idea of what real America is. And as these conservatives um, rose within the Republican Party, that is a process that by 1980, you know, by the time Ronald Reagan became president, conservatives, these movement conservatives had really become the, the most important faction within the Republican Party. And with the rise of, of, of um, uh, conservatives within the Republican Party, this also became the overriding concern for the Republican Party. Um, so really, you could say since it started in the 1950s and 60s, again, as a reaction to the civil rights legislation and the civil rights progress that was made in the 1950s and 60s, um, and then by the 1980s, or the late 70s, early 1980s, these conservatives had really taken over uh, it within the Republican Party. And so this is, again, they've been on this trajectory for a long time. Um, Donald Trump is himself uh, a result, not the cause of this sort of conservative turn against democracy. He's much more, he's a, a radicalization and an exacerbation of these anti-democratic tendencies and impulses. But th those tendencies and impulses have been there and they have been sort of defining the conservative political project for a long time. Well, but Trump is the perfect candidate, is he not? Because he adheres to the white Christian agenda with his Supreme Court appointments, etc. And that's why they made the deal to put Pence on the ticket, because he represents that white Christian constituency. But then Trump was able to also attract the kind of secular white working class discontented voters. So that's the coalition now. It's no longer the party of the Chamber of Commerce. It's in many ways the party of angry white men. Um, and I think, I mean, you, I think you, you hit the nail on the hat there. That's why Trump was such a, a perfect candidate for that particular moment, right? Because, like, Trump was really um, openly embracing that sort of politics of white grievance, right? That po politics of white anger, right? He was. He was not, there was no more subtext. There was no holding back. There was no adhering to precedent or norms. There's none of that, right? Um, it's interesting, I think, if you, if you try to understand how conservatives, how the Christian right, how these people came to unite behind Trump, even people, by the way, who initially in 2015, 2016 were like, we don't like this guy. He's terrible, right? Um, um, we don't like his character, whatever. But they all united behind 
him. And you saw in 2016 this idea that Trump was a bruiser, a brawler. Um, and that was exactly what they needed in this particular moment, right? Uh, someone who would fight back against, again, what they see is th this this radical leftism. Now they call it wokeism or whatever whatever is the term, right? The left taking over in America. And they it, it's it's really, I mean, I think it's it's really important to understand the, the, the sort of siege mentality on the American right. They are not acting out of a sense of strength, right? Um, these, this authoritarian onslaught that we are witnessing right now, it's not coming from a sense of strength. It's coming from a sense of weakness. They are feeling like they're losing, right? And again, they are reacting to something real. They are reacting to the fact that due to political, cultural, demographic changes, the country has become less white. The country has become less conservative. It has become less Christian, right? It has become more liberal. So they are reacting to that by basically saying, look, we now need someone who is able to uh, not hold back, able to fight back as a bruiser, as a brawler, right? And they saw that in Trump. So that is why, again, even people who initially were sort of skeptical about Trump, the person decided that Trumpism, right? Trumpism as a political phenomenon, as a, as a, as a political promise, right? Um, that was exactly what was needed in this particular moment. Not, again, you saw a lot of like what we need now, again, this is going back to 2016, what we need now is not another like regular Republican, normal Republican. We need someone who will really fight back. And that's how they, what they saw in Trump. And that's why, again, I mean, they remain united behind Trump. I mean, that's, that's I think, what too many people were sort of you know, Joe Biden got elected president and, and the Democrats are holding uh, the House and the Senate. And, and how bad could it possibly be? Well, look, Republicans did not look at the 2020 election and decide that, you know, Trumpism was sort of a failed experiment. No, on the contrary, they are, they remain united behind Donald Trump. They still think that Trumpism is is the right way to go. And again, they are trying to make sure that um, they they understand better than anyone else that they're not going to get or it's, it's, it's unlikely that they're going to get numerical majorities of voters behind them, but they don't have to, right? Because of the anti-democratic distortions in the American political system, they don't have to get a majority of the votes and they understand this uh, better than anyone. And so they are transforming the system into, a, again, something that would allow them to erect basically uh, sort of authoritarian minority rule on the state level uh, in particular. Sure. And just in the last minute here, just a few days ago on Saturday at a rally in Arizona, Trump hoisted this racist grievance piece of nonsense that white people are at the back of the line now in terms of getting uh, treated for COVID. So it continues. But just a quick comment on what's going to happen after the elections at the end of this year. If the Republicans win by cheating, which they've laid the groundwork for, they've also in many states passed laws that will criminalize any kind of protest. So if the Democrats come out to protest, the laws are against them. In fact, you can run Democrats over with a pickup truck and get away with it. I mean, look, the playbook is 
the same basically wherever uh, Republicans are in charge on the, on the state level. It's aggressive partisan gerrymandering. It's voter suppression laws. Over 400 voter suppression laws have been introduced since the last election. It is facilitating uh, election subversion by purging state and, and local election boards, giving Republican-led uh, state legislatures more power over how elections are run. And again, like you said, they are flanking these measures by criminalizing protest um, in order to basically preempt a mobilization of civil society. Um, and they know that they have the Supreme Court on their side, so they don't have to be subtle about any of this. There's nothing subtle going on here. And look, this is why the current fight over voting rights legislation is so important. We need nationwide standards of voting rights. We need a robust a federal response to what is going on at the state level. And if that is not coming, then again, this is what I was trying to sort of emphasize in this article in, in The Guardian today. If that is not coming and it's not coming soon, then it will be impossible to stop America's slide into authoritarianism. Um, and I think there's still too many people who feel like this this sounds far-fetched or alarmist or whatever they might call it, but it is happening and we need to really grapple with what is going on and that we need a robust federal response um, again to to stop what is happening on the state level. Well, Thomas Zimmer, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I mean, speak with Thomas Zimmer, who teaches 20th century U.S. and international history at Georgetown University's BMW Center for German and European Studies, with a focus on the transatlantic history of democracy and its discontents. Previously, he was assistant professor of contemporary history at the Albert Ludwigs University in Freiburg in Germany. And he has an article at The Guardian, America must take steps to avoid a slide into authoritarianism. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine
Yeah.